Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Chris, and um, I've been part of this Sangha for a number of years. Um, I was asked to uh, be practice leader this month. And, that, uh, and, and the way that we're doing this now is uh, the practice leaders are going through the 14 mindfulness trainings and, and looking at what, what kind of resonates, what is it that, that we feel compelled in some way to, to speak about. And uh, I've been, you know, going through those mindfulness trainings periodically, trying to sort of think, okay, what's really sticking out? And I have to say that uh, there's really all, always, for me, one particular training and, and one part of that training that uh, looms larger than, than any other. And so I felt like I was almost avoiding it by not talking about it. Um, it's a bit of a taboo subject, but it's one that's um, incredibly personal for me. So I'm going to open up and tell stories that I, I don't really share all that often. Um, and uh, I don't, let me preface this by saying that I don't have answers. Um, I have lots of questions. I have lots of thoughts. And I've had this over the course of the majority of my life. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, I will present these questions to this group and see what, uh, what comes from this. Um, so I was a junior in college in 1988. So do the math, it's been a little while. Uh, and uh, was a student of the philosophy of religion. Um, you know, carrying with me a lot of baggage from my youth, growing up in a fundamentalist Christian household. Not what it means today, it's a little bit different in the 80s. Um, but nonetheless, going in with a lot of questions about what is, how does the universe actually work? You know, did God really create it the way that we've been told? All these kinds of things. Well, at a certain point when you're in college, you have to start filling out your credits. Um, and uh, here comes a class called Zen. And well, that sounded pretty cool. I had no idea what Zen was. Um, but I took the class, and um, it set me on a course that I've been on for the rest of my life. It just so happens that, that very same semester, um, my roommate and I thought, you know what we should do is let's go try marijuana. Um, you know, we had no experience, no idea what it really was, um, how to get it, how you take it, how much you get, any of that stuff. So, but we managed to, to find some, this being college. Uh, and, uh, you know, the idea originally was, well, let's wait until after finals. And of course that didn't happen. Uh, and uh, my roommate didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. I tried it, eh, not for him. Uh, for me, it was uh, transformative. And really from that point on, both Zen Buddhist teachings and practice and cannabis have played a role in my daily life. Uh, and so it's an area of rich in taboo. Um, I'm a, being a child of the 80s in the Just Say No era, you're trained not to talk about it. Um, it's a career killer. Uh, it can change your friends, turn them against you, raise all kinds of questions about your place in society. And so got really good, really good at flying below the radar. Until about 2006, uh, when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. 
And that uh, also was transformative in my life. Uh, at the time, I was a public defender in Helena, very stressful life, and found that at a certain point, if I had any chance to lean up against a wall or sit on a bench or any of that, that's where I would go and realize that I was getting very, very sick. Fast forward a few months and I'm life flighted from the Butte Hospital or the Helena Hospital to another hospital in um, Salt Lake City where there were some people that actually knew what Crohn's was. This was still fairly early. It's a lot more common now. Um, and and uh, I was enough of an attorney at the time to, to say, yeah, I'm, I'm a recreational marijuana smoker and knew that I wasn't going to get in trouble. The cops weren't going to come in and arrest me or anything like that. All the doctors picked up on it. And I had, I had an interesting uh, moment where they came to me and said, you know, um, it took us a very long time to diagnose you with Crohn's because you're a lot older than people that we see that ever get this disease. I was about 13 or 14 years older than, than people who normally uh, are diagnosed. And they said, but we noticed that you're a regular cannabis consumer and we think that it's very likely that you've lived with this disease for a while. It's just only recently caught up. And so I found that to be very interesting, not the least of which because they thought I was actually at a certain point going to recover. And at that time it wasn't clear to me that that was a thing. Um, but I did recover. And then uh, they said, you know, this is a medical marijuana state. This is a great application. In fact, your disease is one of the listed ones in our laws. Um, but none of them would sign my forms. Uh, and that became sort of the beginning of my activist period, which I'm still in. And so here I have this, you know, disease and here this, this cannabis use, which most people would consider to be just purely recreational, um, actually sort of had this weird medical benefit, possibly, right? That was, it was a theory. We don't really know. Um, but that set me off. And since then, a lot of things have happened. Um, I uh, uh, started lobbying in Helena for improvements to the medical cannabis law, which was, which was lousy. It's the worst law in the state or in the, in the country. Um, I set up business with partners, uh, Tom Dober, Chris Williams, um, another partner named Richard. And um, it was a very large and, and pretty well-known business out of Helena called Montana Cannabis. Uh, had a split with the partners. I went my own way, started a law practice, not criminal defense purely, but <clears throat> cannabis. So if you're a patient, if you're a business, I was an attorney that would, wanted to work with you. Um, and then the federal government showed up. This was about 2011, 2010, I think, actually. And they raided about 28 businesses in one day, including the business that I helped create. And so suddenly now I was charged as a co-conspirator and as a co-conspirator um, to gather the mandatory minimums of all of the charges that I was up against um, would have put me in federal prison for 87 years. And that's a mandatory minimum. The maximum was several hundred years. Um, the prosecutor literally told my attorney that I would not leave prison alive. Uh, and yet I was absolutely and still am convinced that 
this is a medicine, that it helped not only me, but people that I came to be very close with and who died during the time that I was providing them care, at least through the cannabis, right? And so it was a, it was a bizarre experience to go through all of this and, and come at this being seen as one way by the federal government and having a completely different perspective um, on my own. But through it all, I was practicing and sitting in the morning and consuming during the day and repeat. Uh, and so these two things have really been going in tandem. My experience as a practitioner and my sort of experience as a consumer and as an advocate and, and all these other things. And so I've never really been able to reconcile these two things. Um, now there are certain things that, that I can say with a lot of certainty, mostly based on some faith here. Um, I, I believe you know the Zen teachers, I think 100% of them would say, better not to do this. Now, certainly not while practicing. So not, don't, you know, smoke cannabis and then sit, right? That that's, that's probably not a good practice. And I think that's right because the few times where I ever did it, it didn't last. I actually would drop off practice rather than sort of get in the habit of, of um, consuming and then sitting. But I was also a little uncomfortable with the idea that while well, I would sit completely sober, which is supposed to sort of train my brain to be acclimated to what life is like being mindful, and then, you know, going under the influence at some later point is that, am I undermining? Am I sort of taking away as much as I'm exercising my brain? So, you know, questions. Um, but it's, it's persisted. And, and here I am, all these years later, um, I've had the exceptionally good fortune to take all that horrible stuff that happened and channel it into my current vocation, which is I and part of a, a group that, that um, does legalization. That's, that's what we do. So um, a, a nine out of the 11 legalization states were campaigns run by the company that I work for, Marijuana Policy Project out of DC. Um, 13 of the medical cannabis states in the last 15 years were campaigns that we ran. So here I am out here transforming and trying to change the world um, for what I think is best. Montana is on the list, by the way, for 2020. There's a ballot initiative that we're working on and that will almost certainly pass. I don't want to be too confident, but we've been at it a while. The polling's there, the money's in place. So um, here we are now. I'm seeing a transformation that will happen in our own state as this becomes uh, something that will be regulated and, and taxed and treated like other products. It, it means that adults presumably will have easier access. Now I've got a lot of statistics about all this kind of stuff. There's a lot, of, there's a lot that suggests that usage patterns don't change. It's more about purchasing patterns, but nonetheless, legal cannabis will be a thing in Montana by the end of the year. And so as I'm sitting here going through the mindfulness trainings, I keep zeroing in on the fifth. So let me just read it. This is, this is from the website uh, that Plum Village maintains. So it's not exactly the, the way I think that ours reads in our, in our binder. But 
So the fifth mindfulness training, compassionate, healthy living. Aware that true happiness is rooted in peace, solidity, freedom, and compassion, we are determined not to accumulate wealth while millions are hungry and dying, nor to take as a name of our life fame, power, wealth, or sensual pleasure, which can bring much suffering and despair. We will practice looking deeply into how we nourish our body and mind with edible foods, sense impressions, volition, and consciousness. We are committed not to gamble or to use alcohol, drugs, or any other product which bring toxins into our own and the collective body and consciousness such as certain websites, electronic games, music, TV, programs, film, magazine, books, and conversations. We will consume in a way that preserves compassion, well-being, and joy in our bodies and consciousness and in the collective body and consciousness of our families, our society, and Earth. Now, I think it would be easy for me to make the argument that, oh, cannabis doesn't have any of those problems. It encourages compassion. It's not a toxin. It's a medicine. These are arguments that I could use on any given day. But I also think that there is truth here beyond a legal argument or a logical argument that I could make. I have to think that the thousands of years that have gone on between the Buddha and me sitting here today, that incredibly smart people have been down this road before and that they probably know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, and so I approach this conversation, I hope, with a lot of humility and an understanding that I come from a very, very specific point of view and not necessarily one that's reflective of all the facets of this pretty complicated question. And so sort of getting to the, the areas that I find interesting, things that keep me pondering, keeping me kind of going over this, this area. And I'll, I'll just float these, see how I'm doing on time, just float these as things to maybe also consider and maybe even we can strike up a, a bit of a conversation about this. Um, so there are certain aspects of this whole sort of cannabis discussion, which by the way, I, I keep talking about cannabis, but I think that this could be applied across the board to all drugs, including alcohol, uh, which of course is a drug, but we like to sort of somehow separate it. But anyway, um, the easy part and the part that I really spend most of my time on as an advocate is this idea that prohibition is bad and harmful to our society. That, that whatever bad things can come from people consuming cannabis, it pales in comparison to the harm inflicted on us as a society when we decide that we're going to punish those who wish to consume it. And in particular, I'm soapboxing, so I'll be careful, but in particular, it becomes a, a weapon of oppression against, in particular, against minorities. Um, in Illinois, where we recently were able to help pass a legalization bill, African Americans were over seven times more likely to be arrested for cannabis offenses than their white counterparts, even though rates of usage are similar between these, the two races. So clearly there's a problem with our society and how this gets abused. That needs to end. That's an easy, easy part of the conversation. 
the hard the harder part is well if it is a part of our society what role as zen as buddhist practitioners how do we treat this as a substance it's one thing if you're in a in a monastery you know you're not going to have a dealer probably nearby there's not a dispensary on your way back to your bunk um, but we live in the real world where we watch TV, we see websites, we you know get angry and, and live in the world around us. We have access to alcohol, we have access to caffeine, also a drug, which affects your thinking. So how do we determine where these lines are? You know, you read the, the trainings and they seem you know pretty straightforward. Do this, don't do this. Because there are problems, this is the way we handle it. Okay, does that mean you should never consume any intoxicants? Well, that's when you start hearing about the trainings being more guidelines than rules. Um, and so, well, all right, how do we make a determination that's not fooling ourselves? And, and just, it's, the monkey mind, I'm extraordinarily adept at rationalizing a lot of stuff, <laughs> including that it's okay to just continually be consuming cannabis. Um, and so I have to be very, very careful in how I treat this topic, that it's easy for me to proselytize because of all the experiences that I've had, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm right. Um, it just means I have conviction. So. Um, the easy part is the harm on society because of how we treat it legally. The harder part is where is it, is, that it, is it ever appropriate to consume this drug or any other? And how do you make that call? Um, there are a lot of ways that this issue can intersect. Um, you see in some cases people actually say, well, I draw from a drug and that helps me in my spiritual experience. There are religions where that's absolutely what they do. I don't think I'm going to pronounce it right, but ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, okay. A drug taken specifically to help under the right circumstances and, 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 and I'm sure that that's a very, very specific experience, that there is an enhancement in, in experience and it's tied into a religious revelation. I, I can't speak to it properly. I don't want to mischaracterize it. Um, Native American tribes um, uh, would at times, not cannabis, but there were other substances. Um, so there is this sort of veneer sometimes, and, and even in the subculture in the cannabis community, you'll kind of see these sort of pop culture references to the Buddha and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think that that's, that's a lot of BS. Um, I don't see any real intersection between these two things, at least in those kinds of references. There's this aspect of cannabis as medicine, right? You know, you could, it's, it's easy to sort of lump people in as, well, they're, these are uh, recreational consumers, so that's a, that's a form of entertainment. You can do without this entertaining aspect, watch a movie, have a more wholesome, it won't you know, affect your thinking, it won't affect, you know, all these things. Um, and, and indeed, there have been studies that were done, particularly in Canada, where they asked people, you know, blind studies, so they didn't have to answer at all, 
why do you consume cannabis? And about, about 45% listed reasons that were actually medical. Uh, my own girlfriend, is ne you would never really think that she'd be a cannabis consumer, but she actually uh, um, has some every night before she goes to bed. It's a lot better than Ambien to her. Um, so to her, that's an entirely medical application. Is she getting high? Yes, she is. Is that a fun experience? Yes, it makes her laugh. And so, okay, where is the line here? Where do you say, well, that's a good reason and that's not? Um, caffeine is sort of an easy, sort of an extreme on the end here. So you could say, well, is that a toxin? Um, it affects the way you think. Um, it makes you jittery. Is it inappropriate as a, as a, as a Zen practitioner to drink coffee before you sit in the morning? Well, is that, you know, is that, is that just an extreme example and just kind of a, what I would call in, in the legal or the logical word, a reductio ad absurdum. Give me an, an absurd example of a serious problem in order to kind of try to cut to the chase and, and call it all uh, fake. So, you know, I, so I don't want to use it as a cop-out, but it does sort of highlight that we're on a sliding scale here. It's easy enough to say, well, we shouldn't, you know, consume heroin and, and meditate. Okay, that's easy. So can I drink coffee and meditate? Uh, probably. You know, would the Buddha really have a problem there? Maybe. But it's probably not on the same order of magnitude. So as we go about our lives, how do we reconcile these things? Because there will be dispensaries on the corner as you drive home from work. Um, they will be accessible, just like liquor stores are. Uh, and so where, how do we as practitioners, not in a monastery not having this isolated life, but living in the world, where is this line where we can find balance between these two things?